0: Amen, I'm so grateful to be able to partner with other Baptist churches around the world to, to minister to the people of Ukraine during this crisis time. Uh, Send Relief is an incredible organization. Uh, Christy Newton, our own Christy Newton, what, does work full-time for Send Relief, uh, and we, we trust them, and our missions committee has, if you didn't catch that, has committed $10,000 of designated money from the budget from this year, then $8,000 of designated funds as a matching campaign for whatever you feel as a congregation led to give. So anything you give for Ukraine will be matched up to $20,000 for the, up to $10,000 for a total of $20,000 to to help what's happening in Ukraine. I know some missionaries in Belarus, and they've been evacuated out of Ukraine. They've they've all been evacuated evacuated out of Belarus as well during this time, but they are working with the refugees right now, like you saw on the borders, and they're ready to rebuild churches. Uh, It's amazing to hear what Ukrainian churches are doing. When I was stressed out about some things that were going on here, I I read an article about Ukrainian churches training their people how to tie tourniquets and I was reminded of a little perspective of what's going on there and how grateful we should be uh, for the freedom that we have to engage and the relative peace that, that we have in our country uh, to, to meet and worship. So, I'm really grateful for Sin Relief and the work that they're doing through the IMB over there in Ukraine and in the surrounding regions right now. You know, I've I've mentioned uh, several times before about the civil rights tour that I took as a part of my doctoral program at Lipscomb and how really impactful that was on me as we went down to Birmingham and then to Selma and then on to, uh, we went to Mobile and Tuskegee and we went to Jackson, Mississippi and then back up through Memphis and, and back to Nashville and we were reminded constantly over and over again of the origins of all this racial strife in our nation. It goes back to what some call our nation's original sin, the the, the horrors of the slave trade. And we were confronted with those realities over and over again, but we know that slavery was not unique to our country. We read about slavery in ancient times. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt and then again in Babylon. We know that in the time of the New Testament, slavery was still rampant. One scholar said that maybe one-third of the entire population in the Roman Empire at the first century were slaves. It was incredibly important uh, to the economy of the Roman Empire. But historians tell us something interesting. As Christianity spread throughout the, the world, slavery actually fizzled out. Slavery actually declined in the Roman Empire as Christianity spread. Not because the Bible explicitly forbids slavery. We know the Bible's been used to justify slavery in this country and even in the Southern Baptist denominations origins as well. But because true Christianity is a religion of freedom, the entire second half of Galatians has this theme of freedom, of true freedom. Remember the first sermon that Jesus preaches in Luke's gospel. He comes back to Nazareth, to his hometown, in Luke chapter 4, and, and he shows up as a rabbi, and so they give him the scroll that, for the text for that day as a visiting guest speaker, the hometown boy who's come back to teach in the synagogue, and they give him Isaiah and he opens the scroll to Isaiah 61. Look at Luke 4. He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news, gospel, To the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty, freedom to the captives. This is why prison ministry is so important, isn't it, Don? And recovering of the sight to the blind. To set at liberty, there's that word again, those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then you know what happened. He rolled the scroll back up and said, Thank you. And he sat down to teach and he said, Today, this has been fulfilled in your presence. And they said, kill him. And they tried to run him out of town. This is what he's come to do. This is what the Messiah has come to do, to give freedom. When I was a youth pastor, I taught a long series. I think I did it on Wednesday nights here when I first came here, but uh, I called this series Bohemian Christianity. And it was based on, if you know anything about the Bohemian culture, like the, the opera, *La Vie Bohème, the, the, the Bohemian life it was based around four ideals. The, the Bohemians were this kind of artsy group in the 1800s. They did a lot of illicit drugs and, and those things, but they, they valued above all things truth, beauty, freedom, and love. And I realize it's not wrong to pursue those things, but if you really want the fullest expression of truth, beauty, freedom, and love, they are found in their most complete form in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's not wrong to chase those things, but we know that, that, that they, they are really, if you really want to experience them in their purest form, it's only through Jesus Christ. I realize again that, that freedom is, is such an important thing to God. It's clear that scripture uh, values freedom and that God values freedom so much because It's it's clear that God wants us to live free. He created us to be free. It's part of our design. That's why slavery is so egregious to God. It violates, it invalidates God's good plan for humanity. It, it, It messes up the image of God in us. To live in captivity, and those who've done prison ministry see this, violates God's own plan for humankind. And today's text is one of those great passages on Christian freedom and what it truly looks like. And I'll give you a hint. It's not about politics. I'll give you a hint. It's not about vaccines or masks. It's not about autonomy like teenagers think and about freedom to do whatever I want to do and be my own master True Christian freedom, here's a preview, is about being owned by the only one who can truly set us free. It's about knowing the only one who can make us live free, and it's about coming to an intimate relationship with the only one who can keep us free forever. So our outline for today is called Freedom in the Spirit No Longer Slaves." And in our text, in Galatians chapter five, if you have your Bibles, and we'll turn there in Galatians five, we're, we're going to see these three specific things that we've been set free from. And the first one is that who we are in Christ, that we who are in Christ are no longer slaves to legalism. Verses seven to 12, "We're no longer slaves to legalism. You know what legalism is? It's kind of one of those church words we kind of throw around, but it's having to follow all the rules in order to be made right. Legalism is believing that you are how you perform. Legalism is the crushing weight of religion that says you have to be good in order to go to heaven. It's that crushing burden that we carry around unnecessarily of guilt that weighs so heavily on those that don't truly know God's good, amazing grace. So let's look at verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who hindered you? Paul likes to use a lot of running imagery, and, and I've run a few races, and I enjoy we got some Trevecca cross-country people back here uh, run races all the time. The, the image here is that the Galatians started out their Christian journey running well. They started out with a good pace. When I ran the, the Nashville, the, the full marathon, the, the first half, I did it in less than two hours. I was feeling really good. My plan was to do it in four hours. And I ran the first half in an hour 55. I was five minutes below my pace. I was thinking, I'm going to do this. And then my Achilles tendon got so tight that I got so scared it was going to pop, and they were going to carry me out in the stretcher, and I need surgery. That I started stretching every mile, and I ended up running it in 4.15. I, I, I missed my, my goal. It's like someone it was like that Achilles a t- a tendon, and had come up to the Galatians and had hindered them, had caused them to cramp up or had tried to trip them. You ever see a college football game where a coach just can't handle it and they, some guy's on a long kick return and coach comes off the sideline and tackles somebody or trips, trips somebody, that happened in the NFL one time where a guy tripped a, a guy on a kick return. That's the image here. The, the false teachers, the Judaizers who had come into Galatia, if you're new here and you haven't heard this series yet, these false teachers who were coming into the Galatian churches and teaching them that in order to be a Christian, you had to be Jewish. You had to be circumcised. You had to follow the Mosaic laws and be part of the Old Testament covenant in order to follow Christ. We call them Judaizers. They're trying to make Jews out of Christians. So two key takeaways in this one verse. Number one, the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. The Christian life, any of our elder members can tell you, it's a marathon, not a sprint. When you run a race, you Truvecca people, you know it takes pacing, right? It takes, and if you're running a long race, Braden, you've done some half marathons. You've done a full, you done a full yet? Yeah, he's done a full too. He's done, he's done a lot of races. You know that nutrition's important, right? You have to hydrate right, and you have to get your electrolytes in balance, So that what you take into your body, both before, during, and after the race, matter greatly. You know that when you race, that you need people encouraging you. What a boost it was when I saw my kids out there with a sign that said, Go, Daddy, run. that, That just gives you that extra kick. We know that in the Christian life, we need all those things. We need to pace ourselves. We need to train ourselves. We need to have a steady diet of God's good word and of the spiritual disciplines that feed our soul and compel us to run. And we need encouragers. We need the body of Christ to cheer us on and to keep us on course. Number two, the truth of the gospel isn't just something to be believed. Look at verse seven again. Paul says, who kept you from not believing the truth but obeying the truth? Paul's never says it's just a doctrine that you need to get in your head. This is a life change that results in trust and obedience, like the old hymn says. You have to trust and obey. You prove your allegiance through your actions. Our actions authenticate our allegiance. Keep going, verses 8 and 9. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven Leavens the whole lump. This persuasion, apparently the Judaizers were pretty persuasive. They're pretty slick. Some commentary writers think they must have been attractive physically, that their message was, you know, they had their their pitch down. They had some really compelling arguments. They may have had some good programs for kids, and they may have had an awesome music ministry, but what they were teaching was toxic and a little poison can kill the whole body. A little leaven, a little poison can poison the entire group. A little leaven goes throughout the entire bread. During COVID, everybody got into sourdough making. I don't know how many bread babies we killed at our house, but we had to keep asking uh, people for more starters, right? Because it's active. And you put a little scoop of it, and it makes the whole bread uh, rise. That he's saying here that a little one bad apple spoils the bunch, right? It's the same idea. A little false teaching can really infect a congregation in a way that gets them completely off course. Paul loves these poor Galatians, right? He loves them like a spiritual father. They're so foolish, and it just drives him nuts. You parents of teenagers know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Paul is confident, though, that, that they're, they're gonna be okay in the end, but right now they're being led astray and he's furious about it, but he's hopeful. Look at verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than the one that I taught you is what he's saying. And the one who's troubling you, which really is Satan, that's what he's saying, one, the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Satan and the false teachers, they're gonna pay for what they're doing. Why? Because Paul's confident that the Galatians are not going to hold on to this false doctrine, this legalistic teaching of the Judaizers, and he trusts that God is going to deal with the toxic people. Let God handle them, because they will be dealt with. Eventually, their own sin is going to lead them to where all sin leads. It's going to lead to destruction. And apparently they were spreading rumors about Paul too. They're telling the Galatians, "Oh yeah, you know, Paul, he's totally on board with us. He's one of us. He's a Jew. He's he's totally good with us having to stick to the law. He's circumcised. He thinks you should be too." Look at verse 11. "But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, he's refuting the rumors. Why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. You see, the message of Christianity is, is offensive. It's deeply offensive. But legalism is easy. And Paul's saying here, I never preach that you have to be circumcised to be part of God's family. That's a very popular thing to say these days, but that's not what I said. That's not what I'm saying now. And I'm not a very popular guy, am I? Legalism is easy. Be good and you go to heaven. Okay, that sounds doable but we like to be told that our salvation is up to us because we like to be in control. I struggle with that all the time. I want to be in control. It's why I don't let Aaron drive when we go places. We think we're pretty good people too. We think, yeah, I'm not that bad. I probably should go to heaven. I haven't done anything too bad. I'm a pretty good person. Our pride needs that. The gospel, though, says that we're incapable of saving ourselves And therefore, we desperately need a Savior apart from his grace. We are hopeless. We are doomed. that can be a tough pill for a lot of us to swallow. I love how the Anglican John Stott, he died about five years ago. He says, the message of circumcision is quite inoffensive, popular because flattering. The message of Christ crucified, though, is offensive to human pride unpopular because unflattering so to preach circumcision is to avoid persecution to preach christ is to invite it and paul's love for the galatians leads to this burning anger at these people who are leading his sheep into the wolves who keep tripping them up like that achilles tendon that jumps up and grabs you he's so furious with them that he has some harsh words for them in, in verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Whew. Paul's at his rudest and crudest here. And, and really, I was talking to Evan and Aaron, I was lamenting and Andy about having to teach this verse. And uh, Evan said, oh, it's, it's such a cool part in Galatians. He said, it's, it's basically the ancient world's way of saying, well, if you love circumcision so much, why don't you marry it? <laughs> I thought that was pretty good exegesis. That was, that was good, uh, good work, Evan. He's basically saying, if you're so committed to this practice, I hope it just destroys you. I hope it just ruins who God made you to be. The way the Bible translates it here in the ESV is, is pretty much softening what he's saying. Evan said, Paul's not playing around by this point. He's just laying it out there, how he feels about these guys. And so that, does that mean that he's out of line? Is Paul sinning? in what he's saying here? No, Martin Luther in his commentary on Galatians says that Paul's reserving such harsh and crude language because the gospel is at stake. Souls are at stake. This is heaven and hell kind of stuff. This is eternity on the the table here. And there's a post I saw recently on social media by one of my professors from Lipscomb who was Uh, saying, you know, God, it was a prayer. And he said, God, I pray that you would terrify Putin in his dreams. I pray that you would break their tanks. I pray that their bombs would explode before they can throw them. I pray, and it was pretty harsh stuff, and I was like, whoa. But then he was citing places in the Bible where even Jesus prayed a prayer like that. It's called imprecatory prayer. It's a prayer of bringing justice It's a prayer of asking God to confound those who would otherwise do evil. It's a very biblical thing. It's it's to pray like Jesus prayed. Yes, we are to love our enemies, but at the same time, we don't neglect God's justice either. Praying imprecatorily, or saying what Paul says about these Judaizers here, is invoking divine curses upon them because they're wreaking havoc in the church. They're doing damage to the gospel, and when the gospel's at stake, I pray that we would stand up boldly and have harsh words to say when it's life and death at stake. We long for God's kingdom to come to earth, and sometimes that means God bringing a little destruction, God bringing a little ruin to those who would rather make earth more like hell, especially when the gospel is at stake. What else are we freed from? Part two. We who are in Christ are no longer slaves to licentiousness. That's a big word. If you need to spell it, it's on the screen. (laughs) What is licentiousness? It's saying there are no rules. It's the opposite of legalism. It's saying we can just do whatever you want. Do whatever feels good. It's also known as libertinism. It's what theologians often call antinomianism without laws is what that means literally. And this is the gospel of our culture, isn't it? This is what we're seeing in that false gospel of individualism that gets preached all the time by every movie I've seen, by every book that I read that is coming from non-Christians. This idea that I can do whatever I want because I'm in charge. At Starbucks today, I saw a sign, they're hiring. And the subtitle said, come be a part of something bigger. And that's what the culture of individualism says, no, there's nothing bigger than you. You are your own God. Obey yourself, do what's good for you. And everybody, philosophers, secular philosophers have said it's really hard to get people to buy in to something bigger than themselves these days. That's what we're seeing here. That's what licentiousness leads to, being your own God. And we know that that's just another form of slavery. Licentiousness, like legalism, is just another way to be a slave. But the Galatians didn't know that. They heard, you know, Paul's message of God's grace and they thought, all right, we're off the hook. Who cares about morality anymore? Why worry about the rules or those Ten Commandments? None of that matters anymore. It's a perfect setup. God loves to forgive sin, and we love to sin. (laughs) It's perfect. (laughs) It's what they're saying. But we know what Paul says in Romans 6. Should we go on sinning so that God's grace should abound? By no means. Absolutely not, is what he's saying. It reminds us of all these people in our culture who are bragging about how free they are. But look at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Our freedom was not given to us to gratify desires of the flesh, but it was given to us to free us to serve and to love. So many people in today's culture, again, who brag about their own freedom, it really started in the 60s. Some of y'all lived through that, the whole free love movement, right? You saw this. How did that work out for those people? Not not great, not great. Were they truly free or did they fall into addiction? Did they fall into broken families? Did they fall into all kinds of of problems and, and evils? The problem is with our freedom is our selfishness our own inward tendencies, narcissistic tendencies that we naturally fall into. We hear of grace and we immediately think, how does that benefit me? Oh, I can do whatever I want now? Great. And we move towards licentiousness, which is inherently selfish. But Christian freedom isn't about selfishness, it's about service. You know, I've used this illustration before, but a centrifuge spins things out, right? Centrifugal centrifugal means center fleeing. It goes out from the center axis. That's what Christian freedom looks like. It's an outward moving love. It's love moving out. It frees us to move out. Centripetal force is center seeking, trying to hoard God's grace for ourselves. It doesn't work that way. It's it's what Augustine said, our our natural state is to be bent in on ourselves. It's navel-gazing. Christian freedom, the gospel, frees us to unbend off of our own interests and to look to the interests of others. What a better way to live, isn't it? When you can be free to not just think of yourself all the time. That's a miserable way to live. And that leads Paul to quote from Leviticus 19.18, like Jesus did, part of our mission given to us as Christians. Look at verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why is Paul talking about the law now? He just said, he spent four and a half chapters saying we didn't have to follow the law. Now he's saying, yeah, you do. (laughs) You show evidence of God's grace in your life by fulfilling the law Which is summed up in the commandment in Leviticus 19 to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's not naturally possible, but it is supernaturally possible. What he's saying is that against uh, our natural tendencies, that when we love others, our actions are authenticating, once again, our allegiance. If we use our freedom to love our neighbors, like the law says, It proves God's grace at work in our lives. No, the law cannot save us or make us right with God, but it does show us how to live according to God's ways. No, we are not justified by the law, but it shows us how to live a sanctified life. The way I always put it is that as Christians, we're convinced that God's ways are the best ways to live. God's ways, as revealed in Scripture, are the ways to thrive and the ways to flourish. We believe that God's ways are best. That includes the law, right? It shows us what a sanctified, thriving life looks like, a life that lines up with scripture. That's how God's people ought to live. But we know that too often people who claim to follow Christ don't live that way. Look at verse 15. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. He's saying this just destroys congregations, doesn't it? Maybe you've been a part of a congregation where you've seen this at work. I pray that Woodmont never goes through backbiting that that consumes one another. But our selfishness, our fear, our ignorance, our egos, they all lead to reverting to that base instinct to take care of ourselves instead of outward sanctified love. We start to go after each other. Forgetting our new identity in Christ means that we are members of one another. It's like married couples fighting. No one wins. (laughs) You're hurting your own team. The same thing's true in the church. Our older saints can, can tell us about this final section that we're gonna look at. The final section is that we're no longer slaves to our flesh. Look at verses 16 and 17. But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There's that word. Teenagers are always, can I do what I want to do? Well, what we want to do as sanctified Christians, we can't do because our fallen flesh is warring against us. And that doesn't end until we move on to the next life. And that that process of battling flesh and spirit doesn't end until we transition. And when we're younger, we think that freedom is being able to do what we want. But we know that that's not freedom at all. We know that as long as we live in these bodies, we have that war going on and that that war leads us into destructive places. When Paul talks about the flesh, let's be clear, he's not just talking about our physical bodies. He's talking about everything that we try to live our lives by that isn't God. Our own intelligence, our mind, our our fallen will, the things that we want, our fallen emotions, our emotive state. The flesh is our attempt to control things, to make our own way in the world opposed to God's way. Paul says here that the flesh is what keeps us from actually doing the things that our new, reborn, regenerated selves want to do for the kingdom of God. It's a sad way to live when you're a slave to your flesh. Your appetites control everything in your life. It reminds me of Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, Paul says there that these, their end is destruction, people who've walked away from faith. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Their God is their appetites. They serve whatever their belly desires, and they go after it, and they just live openly shameful lives. That's a sad way to live, and we know it doesn't end well. Your appetites controlling everything is not gonna go well. But there's good news. Verse 18 says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That's why Romans 8:1, again, there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise be to God. We're not depending on our flesh to make us good anymore. That's why guilt, I mean, that guilt that can crush you if you feel bad for not going to church or you feel bad for doing something sinful, a lot of that guilt comes from Satan who would love to keep you in this self-pity kind of way. But God's grace forgives. It's not a cheap grace. It's a very costly grace. But it says you are free from that guilt. There is Holy Spirit conviction, which is a good thing. You need to discern between that. But that guilt that so many people carried like from their religious baggage, let that go. The flesh can't make anyone right. But you know what the flesh can do? Paul gives us a good list here, verses 19 to 21. Here we go. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, the word there is porneia. It covers all kinds of sexual sins that are outside God's good design. Impurity, sensuality. Idolatry, he moves into religious sins. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, and then social things. Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These evidences of following the flesh proves that they're cut off from the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is where His will is done. People who indulge in works of the flesh are, are not part of that kingdom. God's kingdom is where things happen like they do in heaven, and nothing in that list is heavenly. In fact, those things are hellish. So what are the works of the Spirit? What does it look like to live by the Spirit, to walk in step with the Spirit? Look at verses 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. There's a great little smoothie place in Cool Springs near the movie theater, anybody been there? It's called Nine Fruits. It's run by a Christian family. Anybody like smoothies? I love smoothies. It's like drinking a milkshake that you can feel healthy about. (laughs) It's Nine Fruits, and they have these nine fruits of the Spirit written on on all the cups, on the outside of the cup. These are evidences of God's grace doing what you could not do of your own. You can't just say, patience, be more patient. Uh, Faithfulness, be more faithful. You can't get up earlier, you can't take a class, you can't read a book that's gonna make any of these things happen in you. It's only the Holy Spirit who bears these fruits in our lives. And some come more naturally to us than others. For me, joy is easy. I'm a seven like Logan on the Enneagram. I love to have fun, I love to go on the golf trip and and have all these fun things. Joy comes pretty easy to me, but being faithful I can't tell you how many half-read books I have on my nightstand right now, (laughs) right? That one comes a little harder to me. Thank God my wife is so good at so many of the things that I'm lacking in. We kind of compliment each other like that. I love to practice every New Year's Day. I make a note uh, on my notes on my phone of these nine fruits, and I evaluate myself. Have I grown in love over the past year? Am I more peaceful than I was a year ago? Am I more patient? Is the Spirit cultivating more gentleness in my life? Rachel, I got a great song to teach the kids, uh, Fruits of the Spirit. I still sing it in my head. I can name all nine fruits because someone taught me the song. I'm not gonna do it. You're all wanting to hear it now. I'm not gonna, I'm not Bill Sherman. I'm not gonna sing uh, right now for you. But it's a great song. You should learn in the Fruits of the Spirit. You should value these and, and, and evaluate yourself on them as well. Such an important, not, it's not a comprehensive list. Humility is not in the list, but it it's, lines up in accordance with this list of nine fruits. The idea is that God does in us what we can't do in ourselves. So how do we live more like that? How do we live more in tune with the spirit than the flesh? Paul has a pretty extreme idea. Look at verse 24. Kill it, he says. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. You know, he could have just said they've killed the flesh, but he says they've crucified it. Why does he say crucify? Well, he you know, is playing on this idea that Jesus told us that to follow him meant to what? To take up your cross and follow him. I love how John Stott says it. He says Paul's saying here we need to take that metaphor to take up our cross to its logical conclusion. We must not only take up our cross and walk with it, but actually see that the execution takes place. This isn't about just dying to our old selves and rising to Christ like we symbolize with our baptism. It's about daily killing our stubborn, selfish, narcissistic need to control things and live in the way we want to instead of God's way. Again, Stott says that if we want to do this right, Paul uses the word crucifixion on purpose because the Romans were really good at it when they crucified someone it was pitiless it was not a nice thing it wasn't polite it wasn't a halfway kind of deal it was done with extreme efficacy second it was painful putting our own desires to death is not supposed to be fun it's gonna hurt giving up the fleeting pleasures of sin is not easy ask our friends in the recovery community, right? I'm going to be with you guys tomorrow night. I can't wait. You're all invited to come, 7 p.m. It's a wonderful ministry in our church. Giving up the desires of the flesh, they can tell you it's not easy. And then the third thing that we need to do is uh, it needs to be decisive. Death on a cross was a slow, painful death, but be assured, anyone sentenced to crucifixion did die. That sentence was incredibly effective. If you put your selfish flesh to death, it must be certain. It must be putting our our selfish ways to death with a decisive earlier, before the temptations come, we need to decisively put to death our selfish flesh. Finally, after we've crucified our flesh, we must walk with the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 25 and 26. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The image is like marching, right, with step. There's a rhythm to our lives that should line up with what the Holy Spirit is doing. We should be in tune with the Holy Spirit. We should be in line with the Holy Spirit. And since we live by the Spirit, that's a fact that's been established, he says. Let us then keep in step with it to prove that we are growing in God's grace. Getting rid of uh, of what we know to be wrong is crucifying the flesh, but keeping in step with the spirit is following what we know to be right and to be true and to be good. We are free indeed. Let's no longer live like slaves. Let's not revert back into old patterns of slavery. We're free from the, the legalism and the guilt of religion We're free also from licentiousness and trying to be our own God. And we're free from being a slave to our flesh. You don't have to follow your own selfish desires. You're free to walk with the Spirit now. If you're in Christ, you can go to those good places that the Spirit leads us into, besides still waters, into green pastures. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that we, have been saved by grace through faith in you, not through anything we've done. So we don't boast about our goodness, God. We know that apart from your grace, we are dust. And we were reminded on Wednesday at Ash Wednesday that one day our bodies will return to dust, that our life is so fleeting. God, we pray that you would come and sanctify us. You would help us to walk in step with the Spirit, even Walking with you is even a gift of grace, God. It's not something that we do in our own strength. Left to our own strength, God, we would fail every day. And God, we do fail so often. So we come to you again, pleading the blood of Christ, confident that every sin is covered by his sacrifice and is removed from our guilt, removed from our lives as far as east is from the west so that we stand before you, our good, good Father, with no condemnation, with no judgment, but we stand free. We stand unbent on ourselves. May we now live centrifugal lives that go out, that seek the need of others without worrying so much about ourselves. God, free us from our flesh. As Barry prayed earlier, God, We so often are are tempted to choose our own ways over your ways, even if they seem good. But you tell us in your word, God, that there are ways that seem good to us, but in the end, they lead to death. We've seen so many people make a shipwreck of their lives by choosing to follow the flesh. Lord, we pray that you would spare us that end, that you would help us to thrive and to flourish by walking in step with you, Holy Spirit. May you increase in our lives. May our flesh be put to death each and every day as we put it to death, crucifying it decisively and pitilessly. God, we love you. We pray all these things in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.